Welcome to the Profitable Python with your host, Ben McNeil. On this episode, you will meet Ruben Lerner. Ruben teaches Python and data science to companies around the world, both in person and online. His family of courses is designed to help you become fluent with Python. Ruben sends a free weekly Python tutorial to his Better Developers mailing list and has an active blog and YouTube channel. He is a panelist on the Freelancer Show podcast and is publishing a book named Python Workout with Manning. Reuven lives in Modine, Israel, with his wife and three children. Reuven, welcome to the show. Hey, Ben. Welcome to... Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for welcoming me. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, and did I pronounce the city that, that you live in correctly? I meant to ask, ask you... Uh, how, yes, how do yes, I yes. pronounce it? Modine. Modine. Mo okay, perfect. So uh, just like as the icebreaker to kick this off, I wanted to ask you, what gets you so excited by teaching and helping people to understand Python? Look, anyone who has ever taught gets, and, and I, I guess I should say like taught successfully, um, there is uh, an excitement, there's a, a, a fun, there's an incredible um, sense of accomplishment and meaning in seeing yourself helping other people to learn more, right? Like if I give you something physical, if I give you a book, then I've lost the book. But if I give you some knowledge, then we both have the knowledge. And so seeing people day after day getting knowledge or gaining knowledge, I should say, being able to advance their careers, be able to help their companies do more in less time, understand how they can do their work better. That's just profoundly, profoundly satisfying. Um, and I see it in class every day. And then I see it also if I'm in a company multiple times, people will come up to me in the cafeteria uh, and say, hey, what you taught us in class a few weeks ago, a few months ago, I used that and I was able to accomplish such and such. And so it's just this incredibly wonderful feeling to know that I'm helping other people out um, and that they, they are reaping the benefits of it. Yeah, that's awesome. When did, like, it, was it always like that for you or did you kind of have to build up to that uh, level where you were uh, teaching people or did you always know that you had that passion, I guess? So the, the funny slash prophetic part of the story is that in my eighth grade yearbook um, where it says, what do you want to do? I wrote that I wanted to be a computer engineer, write books, and teach. Um, <laughs> this, now, most people's eighth grade yearbooks have nothing, nothing to do with what they actually do. Um, and I went and got a computer science degree, and I worked for a few companies. Um, and then I moved to Israel, I hung up my shingle and started doing uh, freelancing and consulting. And so I was doing some programming and some consulting. And within a few months, a company asked me, hey, instead of just doing the work for us, can you teach us how to do what you do? And I said, sure. And that was my first foray into training and mm. basically just sort of built up more and more and more over time uh, until I was in the U.S. for a few years for graduate school. And we came back to Israel. And I still didn't finish my dissertation. Um, I almost literally ran into someone or he almost literally ran into me like his car <laughs> nearly hit me. And he's like, and before we started yelling at each other, he's like, hey, I know you. And then we started talking. He said, you know, why don't you talk to me and I'll get you in touch with a training company. And then you can do that a lot while you're finishing your dissertation. So hmm. that's when I realized, wait, this is what I really enjoy. There's huge demand for it, especially as Python is just skyrocketing popularity. Um, and people don't call me with bug reports in the middle of the night <laughs> demanding that I fix them right away. So it's basically been about 10 years now that I've been focusing almost exclusively on the training hmm. as opposed to trying to find programming projects. And the more I do it, A, the more dissatisfied I am uh, on all sorts of fronts. But B, um, like, that, like just why would I want to do something else? Um, and I, I see, again, Python is extremely 
uh, popular and growing. And I thought that by focusing on one thing, by focusing on the training and by focusing on Python, it would get kind of boring because I'm just teaching the same thing again and again. But it turns out that with a topic like Python, there's almost infinite depth. And so while I'm satisfying other people by helping them get knowledge, I'm satisfying myself also by digging deeper and deeper into the language and deeper and deeper into the learning needs. And it's always a challenge. How can I teach people better? How can I help them understand better? Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, there's, there's some more questions I want to ask you about that, actually. Sure. The, uh, uh, before we get to those, though, I was curious. So you had mentioned that you went from kind of like creating, making creations and selling those creations to actually teaching people how to make their own creations. And from what I understand, it can be kind of intimidating. Like if, somebody, like, like if my livelihood is based off of making creations and then somebody's saying, hey, can you teach me how to do what you do? Like that could be kind of fearful. How did you, how did you decide like, yeah, let me sh- open up the hood and show you exactly how it's done? I don't think I ever thought about that. I, I guess I, even when I was working on my full-time jobs, especially the second one when I was at uh, Time Warner in New York. So mm-hmm. I ended up giving a lot of presentations to people about what our software group was doing. Um, and so I sort of got more comfortable speaking in front of people, in front of groups uh, and started to develop my own style. Um, and so when they asked me, I guess I figured this is not going to take away my work and or I have a lot of work already. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I had any fears, very, very quickly they were extinguished because the moment you start explaining what you do, first of all, you still know it better than they do. Second of all, teaching it, you now know it twice as well as they do because you have to articulate the ideas and that forces you to really dig deeper and understand it better. Um, mm-hmm. And third of all, they'll be like, wow, so we wanna do the easy stuff and we're gonna bring you into <laughs> the hard stuff because clearly though, there's so much better than we do. Right. And so it never reduced the amount of work that I had. So even if there was a little trepidation at first, um, within days uh, that had evaporated and I didn't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And do you think it kind of helped expand your brand faster because now you're kind of uh, establishing yourself as this authority on, uh, in this space or what is your opinion on that? So when I, when I started off, and I even had a bunch of employees working for me, um, when I started off, I said, we will solve your problem with whatever language it is, whatever technology it is. And mm-hmm. I thought I was being so incredibly flexible and nice. You come to us with a Python problem, fine. You come with a Ruby problem, fine. Pro problem, PHP, whatever it is, we will suit ourselves to your needs. And I prided myself on the fact that someone would call me up with a problem in technology X. I would buy a book on technology X. And two days later, I would go and help them solve problems with technology X. Um, and so by focusing on one technology, I was able to build my brand better because people identified me with that technology. And I sort of shifted around what I was working on for why it was Perl, then it was Ruby, and then it was Python as sort of the main focus. But the moment that I shifted to training only, training in Python, that crystallized my brand for people. Hmm. That made it clear that, oh, so, so, so now there are companies where they say, oh, we need a uh, Python trainer, he's the guy. Um, the, the analogy I've heard, and it's not, me, like that I've heard other people make is, mm-hmm. you remember back in the day, there were the yellow pages, right? Where if you, needed a, you had a problem, you would page through them. Nowadays, mm-hmm. uh, the yellow app. Anyway, yellow um, pages, what's that? No, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Remember kids, <laughs> you can't sit on a phone, but you used to be able to sit on a phone book to sit, you know, reach the table. So um, it used to be like, like so let's say your sink is clogged and you need a um, you know, plumber. So if you look through all the plumber ads, plumber, 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 we fix clogs. The person who says explicitly we fix clogs, you're going to turn to them because they have a perfect fit for your problem. And so in the same way, by niching down and saying, I do Python training, 
Mm. People say, aha, that's what it is. It fits their problem more closely. And so they're more likely to call me. And it seems weird to basically limit in many ways the types of problems I'm going to solve and mm. the types of technologies I'm going to use. But that was the thunderclap that really changed my career in many ways. Um, I, to such a degree, I I'll even it. say, I was in Haifa in the north of Israel at a train station a few years ago, like two, three years ago, coming mm. back from a client's office. And I'm sitting down on the bench, they're waiting for the train. This guy sits down next to me, turns to me, says, hey, you're Reuven. You teach Python. I took a class of yours like five years ago. Thinking, wow, wow, that's you know, must be really terrible. No, no, like it really etched <laughs> itself into his brain for for him to be able to uh, remember that. Right. No, I I love it so much. Um, was it uncomfortable for you to niche down, or or was it just this natural progression? It was. It was in many ways a natural progression, even though I sort of knew I should do this. Um, and a friend of mine, Phil Morgan, like he's. Uh, he talks all about the need for niching down, the need for specializing. And he has mm-hmm. this amazing book where he goes through the process of what you should do. And the most amazing thing for me is not only the advice, but the fact that he knows your fears when you're, you know, when you're so he says, okay, t- out of the five things you do, choose one. And he'll say, this will feel like you're limiting your career. And I was like, right, that feels like I'm limiting my career. <laughs> what happened was I had a whole bunch of classes I could offer. Uh-huh. I was in classes in Python and in Ruby and in web and in uh, uh, PostgreSQL. Um, and little by little, I realized I just didn't have time to keep up on all these technologies in the depth that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Whereas people were asking me more and more questions on a variety of things having to do with Python. So instead of continuing to update my Ruby knowledge and continue to update my PostgreSQL knowledge, I dug deeper into data science and I started producing a data science course. Mm-hmm. And that then was a natural progression for my Python students to take. So they would take an intro class, then an advanced class, then the data science class. And so I was offering more to my clients. So it sort of was this push-pull where I felt where the market was going, um, mm-hmm. and then the market rewarded me for paying attention to it. And then that just was this sort of virtuous cycle that continued and continues to this day. Uh, right. the, my latest course that I'm working on now is on PyTest. Okay. Uh, and what is that coming from? Because people have said, gee, we really could use a PyTest course. Right. Yeah, I love it so much. And I know one of your ambitions in the near and long-term future is to really build out your course library. So, so where do you where do you see yourself niching down beyond this point or or is that really your strategy at this point so at this point i have uh nine ten nine i think in-person courses that i give mm-hmm. on a regular basis um and i'm probably going to add one or two to those in the coming years so this is the pie test course um for a while i was thinking i should really do something with async io and then async io did not seem to be very popular at all and then mm. suddenly this year at PyCon, when I had my booth, a ton of people came up to me and said, so are you going to teach ACKO? So that's my in-person <laughs> courses. And I tend to use those as a laboratory for creating my recorded courses mm. in many ways because um, I'll get the questions from people. I'll find out where it's not clear. And only after I've really refined it with actual in-person students do I then say, okay, I feel like I can record this. And people will, will hopefully say, oh, wow, I didn't realize. Like, how did he know? what question I was gonna ask, how do you know what doubts I had? It's because basically I have aggressively questioning students, especially here in Israel, who won't mm-hmm. let it go until I've actually let it go. So, <laughs> so my goal is to like probably keep my in-person courses roughly where they are, mm-hmm. and my video courses built in the library, we're now there, I think I also have about 10 courses, and that can, can and should be about 20 or 30. Um, in right. part because also the recorded courses are shorter in scope and shorter in length, and so people can then sort of mix and match what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I love so much about what you just said is basically like, you don't know what the future holds exactly. You know, you're kind of niching down on this data science area and the ecosystem there, but mainly you're listening to the, 
to the, to the ecosystem and then delivering them what they want. That's what I love so much about what you just shared. Right. So like, so with data science, you know, I, I mean, I did a PhD. I had to take uh, courses in statistics. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then I discovered in my Python courses that people, like I always ask people, I always, always, always ask my students the first day, um, not only for their names, but you know, why are you here? And I joke with them, uh, you know, not, and it could be because your manager forced you to come here. <laughs> um, and I say like, what, what do you plan to do with it? What, what sort of work do you do? And so over time, I saw a growing trend, and this of course reflects the broader Python community, that there were more and more people who were taking Python courses so that they could go and learn the data science stuff. Mm. And so as I saw that trend happening, I said, okay, I should probably learn more data science, learn NumPy and Pandas and how to use them well and scikit-learn and mm. then offer a course in it. And now I would say that's like my second or third most popular course because of course data science is everywhere. Mm. Um, I still do tons and tons of teaching my intro, intro and advanced Python courses, but data science is, as I said, like probably number two or three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. It, I kind of had it later in my interview questions, but I'm just going to go for it right now because you basically talked about there's like an intersection between big data, data science, and then the connectivity of all these de- devices that's occurring here. And I was just wondering, what do you think is going to happen when those things fully collide? Or are we already like neck deep in this collision right now? Look, it's starting to happen, right? Like, you know, a lot of us walk around with cell phones and smartphones. And so those are broadcasting extraordinary, terrifying (laughs) amounts of information to various companies Mm -hmm. uh, and in some cases governments around the world. So there is already, you know, in many ways like an Internet of Things, but the classic example that people give of your refrigerator or your car or all sorts of other things in your house, that is happening but hasn't yet happened. Look, I think it's both sort of, it's a double-edged sword, right? So uh, for programmers, it's, uh, you know, it's paradise because the number of projects, the number of programmers, the number of companies that will be needed to make all this happen is just going to explode. And that's a fantastic opportunity. And mm-hmm. the fact that Python is used for a lot of these things is great for anyone in the Python space. Um, and as consumers, wow, that's fantastic. We're gonna have all these things available. Like, yeah, we have an Amazon Alexa in our kitchen um, and we use it for uh, most of the time, the shopping list. Why? Because it means I can just go to the store, take out my phone and look at the list of what I need to buy, right? It's just super incredibly convenient that way. Um, but also as, you know, as citizens, as humans, we need to be a little bit scared, I think, of the privacy implications of having all these things connected. There's right. a fabulous, fabulous book by Kathy O'Neill, um, which is not just a great book, but a great title called Weapons of Math Destruction, um, okay. where she talks about uh, the social implications of these things. And it really, really needs to make you think. So I'm delighted in many ways, but also uh, cautious. But as a Python instructor, ah, it's a business opportunity, right? Uh, yeah. Teach even more people um, how to do this, how to, how to be evil, right? Don't be evil yourself, but teach people to be evil. That, that's my business <laughs> strategy. <laughs> that's the business model already. <laughs> Enabling evil. Yeah. (laughs) No, that's hilarious. And then you brought up something else um, on the pre-interview where it was like one of the powers of Python is basically it it removes all this barrier to entry. So I could see that being a good thing if the demand is kind of outpacing all all these people that are coming in. But what do you kind of see for the the outlook of of the skill? Is is it are we going to hit some sort of critical mass where where it's no longer uh, profitable or, or kind of like commoditized or can you kind of speak on, on uh, that, that side of things? So first of all, the growth of Python is 
astonishing. So I've been using Python since was like 92 or 93. Mm -hmm. um, back when the people who used it were reading the man page in order to learn it. And I think the tutorial actually existed at the time also. But mm -hmm. the, the core Python developers were moving from place to place because no one really saw it as a, you know, a really important language. Or even mm -hmm. those who saw it as important, you know, no one was willing to fund it or do the, the, that sort of thing. Um, and fast forward now to 2019 and oh my goodness, like it's hard to imagine a company that's not using Python and that doesn't have extraordinary demand for it. But we have to imagine that because moving forward, it's going to be even greater. Like the number of companies that use Python is going to grow and the amount to which they use Python is going to grow. So in general, generally speaking, knowing Python is going to continue to be a very, very valuable uh, corporate skill. Indeed, a company I was teaching at about well, like two, three years ago, uh, before the course, the head of HR came in and said, we give, we're giving you this course because you're starting to use Python here and you will probably not work here for very long um, because people on high tech move around. We are happy to give you this skill that we know you'll be able to use in other companies because hmm. so many companies are looking at Python. So that's the good news. But the skill itself is enough to get you a job and there will be many, many jobs for Python. But the better you know it and the more you can specialize, just as I've specialized in the freelancing space, being a specialist in one area of Python is probably going to command you a higher salary, get you more in demand for certain things. So if you're a DevOps specialist in Python, right, if you're an Ansible specialist, then people aren't going to be looking for your Python skills per se. They're going to be looking for your Ansible skills, and those places will pay. So it's sort of like doctors where they learn general medicine in medical school and then they specialize in something. Mm -hmm. I think software engineers would be wise to specialize in something beyond just regular Python. And if that sounds scary, like, wait, what, is, what if I don't like it? What if it doesn't work out? Well, you still have the basic Python skills and you can go back and learn other things and you will. That's a, a natural progression for someone's career. Mm. Yeah, you, you kind of brought up something there that I wanted to hit on and that was like, okay, so there's this Python ecosystem, but then there's all these different technologies potentially, like you had mentioned Ansible and DevOps. So like that could be like a whole career path basically. What is your message to us, uh, aspiring Python uh, software developers? Like how do they prioritize learning these different technologies or uh, without asking too many questions in a row? Like how, what, what would be like a good filtering mechanism for them because, I mean, for me, I've never heard of a bad idea, you know, being an entrepreneur type. <laughs> so like, help me out here. Help the audience uh, kind of filter so, this. So first of all, know the fundamentals really well. Um, like just about every time I teach my intro Python class, um, and these are, these are aimed at um, uh, like experienced software engineers who know Java, C Sharp, C++, those sorts of languages. And we start to talk about strings and lists and tuples and dictionaries. They sort of roll their eyes. They're like, okay, like, give, me, give me the real objects. Right? Give me the real meat of the language. Um, <laughs> and, and I explain to them, that's sort of like going into a chemistry class and saying, enough of these elements. Give me real chemicals. Right? Like, you have to know the elements to be able mm. to be a good chemist. In the same way, you have to be really fluent with strings, lists, tuples, dictionaries, variable scoping, functions, objects, in order to do stuff. So that is like the first priority, and that will then give you the flexibility to move around between the different things and the niches. And mm. then you know what? Choose one. Choose one that you like. Choose one that's in demand. Hopefully there's an intersection between the two. Choose one that you see lots lots of ads for, I guess it's in demand because you can always having those fundamental skills switch. You can always mm -hmm. go to a company if you've been doing DevOps and they want something for web, you'll be like, okay, I can build upon my other knowledge and do web stuff. Um, or you can you know, learn pandas. You'll always be able to learn other things because you have those basics. 
yeah, I, I love that. I hope people are hearing this loud and clear fundamentals and then just do what you love. Hopefully there's an intersection, but you can't go wrong with the fundamentals. That's, that's your absolutely. message. Ab, ab, yeah. Absolutely. Again and again and again, I see this in my classes because even my intro course is aimed at experience software developers and, um, aimed at, and, and it's often people who've been using Python. I define a sort of as up to six months. And mm. inevitably when I go over these data structures or go over functions or go over variable scoping or classes, inevitably someone will be like, oh, now I understand what I was struggling with last week because mm. like the picture is clearer and they were sure that they understood the language because you know, Python is simple. How hard could it be? It's just a scripting language. And once they start to take it seriously the language and see how the structure works, mm. um, they can also identify their own problems. Plus which, plus which the, um, everyone nowadays, and I do it too, everyone goes to Stack Overflow for answers. Right. And the Python community especially, there seems to be a huge number of people who say, well, I don't really need to learn language because I can just go to Stack Overflow and I'll copy and paste. So I'll spend 30 seconds copying and pasting and five hours fidgeting to get the thing that I copied and pasted to actually work. Um, and somehow this is more productive, right? And right. The, the, my, my, my metaphor for Stack Overflow is it's like going to a country where you don't know the language and using a phrase book that yes, mm -hmm. you can then find the bathroom. You can go to a restaurant and like order some basic things, find the train station. But the moment you wanna actually stitch together your own sentences, you're stuck. And heaven help you when they actually answer at native speed because you actually knew how to pronounce it correctly. Um, and so it's, if you know these fundamentals, if you really understand the structure of Python, then you won't need to go to Stack Overflow for these day-to-day -day things. And when you do go there, you'll understand how to fidget with it. It won't take you five hours. It'll take you one hour or half an hour or five minutes. And that's the real power of the fluency there. Yeah, let, let's dig into that a little bit. I, I was just curious, like the main benefit of Python fluency, and we're not talking about fluency in Stack Overflow Python. We're like, we're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> like what is the main, the main benefit of Python fluency? So first of all, it's that you can express yourself quickly in the language. You have a problem and you don't need to think anymore. Like we're talking in English now, right? I don't need to start thinking about, well, wait a second, where does the noun go? Where does the verb go? How do I get subject verb agreement to work? I just express myself. And the same way if I have a programming problem, I'd like to just be able to sort of almost automatically, almost instinctively break it down into pieces. Say, okay, I'm gonna use a list of tuples um, and I'm going to store that list of tuples in this global variable. I'm going to pass in this way. Like when you're really fluent in Python, you can make those decisions almost instantaneously. And that gives you a power to solve problems that you didn't before. Um, it also means that you can see other people's solutions and see both sort of the, the upside and the downside of them, evaluate them. So you're mm -hmm. both writing your own code better and faster. And what you write is then going to be better and more maintainable. And when you encounter other people's code, you're going to be able to maintain it more easily as well. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes, right? But you're going to make fewer mistakes and the mistakes will be probably down the road more. And the day-to-day -day stuff is not going to get you down with 10, 20, 30 visits stack overflow for every last little thing you have to do. Mm. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what do you think when it comes to students becoming fluent, where do you see them getting stuck? Or is there like a pattern at all? So... A lot of them are stuck on some of, because again, Python is so simple in terms of its syntax, people assume, oh, I just sort of understand it. And so they don't get even such basic things as variable assignment and references, right? So they're surprised when, if I create a list 
And then I create a second list with that list three times inside of it. You know, big list equals square brackets, my list, my list, my list. Mm -hmm. They're surprised if I change my list, it affects big list because they don't understand how referencing works. Mm -hmm. They don't understand how variable scoping and uh, attribute lookup work. These sorts of things that seem super, super, super boring <laughs> and super simple, it turns out that those provide a great deal of the fluency in the language um, mm -hmm. and the ability to work with it quickly. Um, and once, once you master those, those basic skills, I think, then things go much faster. Um, of course, many people are uh, surprised by the whole mutable default arguments in a function thing. People get bitten by that all the time. And so I always, I always um, in my courses, try to demonstrate what can go wrong when you do that so that it'll really sort of stick with them and horrify them. And then uh, they, you know, I, I love the sort of sh you know, shock and awe where they're like, what? How could this possibly be? Mm -hmm. um, and then I say, okay, that's why you should never do this. Don't do this, kids, um, <laughs> that sort of thing. But there isn't one place. I'll tell you, though, what I try to do in my courses is listen to the questions that I get. And then if I get the same sort of question repeatedly, I will then try to address that preemptively. So, for example, I used to, when I started teaching, just do one exercise with dictionaries. Here's a dictionary. Here's how it works. Let's use it. And then I realized, wait, wait, I need to actually spell out how do you use dictionaries, hmm. right? So I show them how we can use it as a little database. I show them we can use it for accumulation. I show them how we can use it as a dispatch table. And seeing many different examples of how you can use it then opens their eyes to the different opportunities and possibilities. They no longer see it as, oh, it's a key value store. They see it as, aha, it's a key value store and can be used to solve a variety of different problems. Mm. So it's, it's almost like uh, giving them the practical application is often the missing link, maybe, from, from what I, they've experienced in other training. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, I mean, so you know, I, I, have, I have three kids, and you know, very often they'd say to me, oh, math class, how is it possibly useful? Right. Mm. And so I'll say that, well, actually, a whole lot of it is not that useful, but some parts are really useful. Like I, I'm, I'm big on like, why do you need to learn geometry? But maybe that's mm. just because I really did like geometry so much. And I, but like, but basically there are parts that are really useful and will help you certainly, especially in certain careers. Mm. But the teachers never say that, right? The teachers are never like, we're teaching you this because it will help you with that. They just say, we're teaching this because the, you know, the country's curriculum requires that you learn this. And so you're going to learn it. And you're going to hate me and I'm going to hate you. And it's going to be a you know, terrible <laughs> adversarial relationship for N years. Yeah. My kids at some point said, dad, like, so when you teach, do you yell at your students? Like our teachers <laughs> yell at us all the time. And I'm like, Oh my God, where do we even start? Like, yeah. And I had to, when I told them my students want to be there, right. this was, you know, eye opening to them. Hmm. Yeah. There's something, there's something to be learned from that. Uh, there. Wow. I mean, first of all, like learning never ends basically, but, um, Finding the incentives, I guess. It, like if you, if you don't understand what the incentives are, like just you need to probably seek them out is kind of, I don't know. It might seem too fundamental, but it crosses my mind a lot, I guess. For sure. For sure. Look, and what you said about learning never ending, um, I think it's true in a growing number of careers. Um, you know, we know that for years and years and years, doctors, nurses, lawyers, they've had to do continuing education. And we don't state it explicitly in the computer industry, but we have to do continuing education because if you just stick with what you knew five, 10 years ago, um, you might be able to maintain existing software, but you're not going to get newest, greatest, most interesting jobs. Mm. And so constantly keeping up to date, that takes time. And so often what, I, what the value that I'm providing to these companies is they could just say to people, yeah, yeah, go, you know, go read. We've got a Safari subscription for you. 
but their employees are never going to do it because they have so much pressure on them. And so by giving them this assigned time, this scheduled time to take time off and sort of open their heads and learn new stuff and improve their skills, um, first of all, that's a gift to the employees. It really is. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes the employees more loyal also, but it means the employees are going to do a better job because they've now absorbed better techniques, better skills, and just refresh their memory on some things. Yeah, that's, there's so much gold in there. I, I hope people are just uh, taking notes and getting, getting all this value. Thank you for sharing that. Do you find that in-person training is more or less effective than self-paced training? I know you kind of hit on this, but I just want to address it head on. Done well, uh, it's much more effective. And it's more effective, and by the way, like the, the irony and the hypocrisy is that where do I go for training? Well, I, I do a lot of self-training, right? Because right. you know, who's going to teach me? Um, although I do go to, I watch a lot of lectures and I do uh, you know, take some online classes, but for the most part, self-training. But the, so in the education business, you talk about um, two different things. You talk about content knowledge and pedagogical content knowledge. Mm -hmm. And content knowledge is the actual stuff you need to know. And the pedagogical content knowledge is knowing how to teach it, knowing how to teach it effectively. And so the, the analogy I often use is that of a stand-up comedian, um, which is when you see a comedian and you see them tell their jokes, those jokes have gone through hundreds of refinements in front of less fortunate audiences. <laughs> um, and so by the time you actually see the comedian, they, have, they know how to say it, how to, you know, what to accentuate, what tone to use, what hand motions and body language to use. So they're going to maximize the laughs they get out of you. In the same way, my sort of competitive advantage as a trainer is I'm training every day. I'm experimenting with my explanations and my mm -hmm. exercises every day. And so I'm going to hopefully hit upon the optimal way to teach, not for everyone, but for most people, most of the time. Um, and reading a book, you're not going to get that as much. Um, because you're going to be self-paced, you're going to have pressure from work, and the explanations are just not going to sort of be quite as well-matched with your needs. That said, that said, some people can't. Like, it's, yeah, it's not for everyone, right? It's, it's a close match. I would say the other key thing is the interactions, right? If I'm reading a book and I don't quite understand something or I wish I could dig into something more, what am I going to do? Or I could ask the book, but that's not going to be very effective. Whereas if there's in-person training, you can stop the instructor, ask them, so, you know, get them to explain more depth. And that happens to me all the time. I encourage my students as much as possible to interrupt me and to say, wait, we don't get that. Or can you show that in a different way? And mm -hmm. so the, each training, even if I don't explicitly change the syllabus for a company or for a group, it's customized for that group based on the questions they ask and the interactions I have with them. Um, I'll, I'll, I mentioned earlier that I always go around and ask people their backgrounds. What I can then do is if I see that there are a lot of people with a, like a Java background, um, and my Java skills are not so deep, but I can make some analogies to things in the Java world that will help to bridge that gap and help them understand things better. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like the value add is kind of that little community for that isolated time and in kind of the interactions, I guess. That makes a lot of sense. How did you develop the insight and perspective to become an effective teacher? Um, I would say there's two things. It was both um, a lot of trial and error Lots of time, and, and, and I have, a, I would say, been three things. One is a trial and error. Two is my competitive advantage in living in Israel, where people are not shy. People ask questions. People will be brutal. Uh, so, so basically, I like, you know, teach here, and I find out where all the flaws are very, very quickly because people don't hold back. But, you know, you go to another, com company, you go to another country, and you teach, 
and they're all very polite and they'll nod their heads and they'll mm. give you a scathing review at the end. And in Israel, <laughs> you get the scathing review in real time. Why wait? Uh, <laughs> Um, and the other thing is, um, so I did do a PhD in what's called learning sciences. And mm -hmm. I never did that with the intention of doing training or understanding training or anything. But that uh, learning sciences is a combination of uh, cognitive science and computer science and design in an education school. And so mm -hmm. it's all these different strands together. How do you use technology? How do you create more effective design, more effective learning environments? Mm -hmm. And how do people really learn? And so um, through those, through my classes there, through my dissertation work, through the theory that I learned, I was able to also help structure my classes a little better. So there's a classic uh, problem in education uh, called transfer. And the idea is that the knowledge you learn, I mean, this has been proven again and again and again, like the knowledge you learn is tied to the context in which you learn it. So mm. math again, right? You learn math in school. You might be great at math in school, but when you encounter a problem that requires math out of school, you're not necessarily sure how to apply it. And so the solution for transfer, the solutions for transfer are many examples, diverse examples, lots of exercises and practice, and trying to hit people from as many different directions as possible with use cases so that they will themselves see the, use, the, the usages later on when they encounter real life. And so I've really tried to incorporate um, as much of that as possible in my training so that people will themselves see the opportunities for, for using their knowledge uh, when, when the class is over. Mm. Yeah, I'm so happy you brought that up. I, I feel like you're you're looking at my list of questions right now because <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, it's like literally my next question here was like, what types of variety in learning perspective should students be leveraging? And you could almost parlay that with like, if you're self learning, you need to manufacture these different perspectives because they're not being hand delivered to you in, in a training setting. So, can you shed some light on? developing learning perspectives, I guess, or acquiring those different perspectives? Look, part of it is with other people, and part of it is um, lots of questions slash problems, right? Because whatever you're doing in your work, it's almost certainly restricted to a very select subdomain, right? Mm -hmm. So even if you're doing DevOps, you're not doing lots and lots and lots of DevOps. You're working with some servers that have been predefined probably before you got there that you have to make sure to maintain and work. I'm not saying there's no work. I'm saying that the work tends to be in a very narrow niche. And mm. so you want to sort of break out of that niche, not for your career necessarily, just for sort of opening your mind and understanding other ways of doing it. So one way to do that, well, first, first of all, working with other people is crucial. Um, so whenever I give my classes, I tell people to work in pairs, right? Two people, one computer to solve the exercises. Now, two thirds of the people don't do this. And I tell them in advance, because I like, I'm not, I can't force them, right? But I say in advance, I know programmers don't like to do pair programming. I know you want to work on your own. And I know you're like, I will solve this myself. And then I will learn more. And you're wrong. You, you will learn more working with someone else, talking to them, because you have to crystallize that information. And that comes through communication. So even if you're not in a course, having some sort of like, you know, a weekly rotating talk in your company or in your group, where everyone has to get up and explain something, the act of explaining, the act of expressing yourself, the act of answering questions, that will improve your understanding and knowledge. Hmm. Pair programming, even if it's once a week, an hour or two, will help you. Finding problems, right? I have an interest in this because I have you know, a weekly Python exercise, right? You know, a whole set of courses designed around this idea. Mm -hmm. But there, it's not just solving Python problems, it's solving them in a community. So we have a forum, people post their solutions. People say, oh, I like what you did here, but I did it that way, what do you think? And it's that communication with new problems all the time that can really help you to grow and improve. 
and you'll be surprised where you then can apply that new knowledge. You won't, you won't expect it. You'll say, wait, I now remember a few weeks ago, I saw some insight here and I can apply it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, kind of like a role reversal. I love the response that you gave there. So uh, another question that I had for you, because you're doing these weekly uh, tutorials, basically, that people can get on your mailing list for free. I think I saw that on your website, right? Yeah, so, so I've got my better developers list, mm-hmm. which is, it's what's called an evergreen list. So I'll like okay. take you behind the scenes. And the idea is when you sign up, you get issue one. And the next week you'll get issue two, the next week you'll get issue three, whenever you sign up. So I now have about like 90 issues in the can. Like, so I can do nothing. <laughs> I can be super lazy. And for 90 weeks, you will get a new newsletter from me. You know, something I can be in the hospital for 90 weeks, right? And right. you'll still get it from me. Um, hello, my family want to get support calls. In any event. Uh, <laughs> But like, and I'm always adding to that. Like uh, nowadays it's probably like once every two weeks, but shh, don't tell the people who just signed yeah. up. Um, and, and so that is right, a new tutorial on a variety of topics, often based on what people ask me in class or people email me about. And I say, oh, that would be interesting. Or it's something that I want to learn more about and I want to dive into in greater depth. And again, like I apply these ideas to myself. How am I going to learn something? By teaching it, by writing about it, by working on it. Um, and so I've got that, but I also have then like, you know, YouTube series and then the paid courses as well. But the better developers is like 100% free, um, mm-hmm. free, free plus annoying ads on occasion. For my other <laughs> courses. Now there's, I mean, there's a ton of value to capture, uh, like somebody that's trying to get acquainted with the fluency of Python. Um, I was even looking at your YouTube channel and stuff. They have a, a lot of the fundamentals. So, I mean, this is, uh, certainly you offer a great resource. Um, the, how do you maintain empathy for, the student learning curve because you've kind of, I mean, how do you, how do you recall what it's like to be in their shoes, I guess? So for, first of all, I think my empathy has gotten better over time. Okay. So, you know, programmers tend to be like, oh, I can't believe they're asking that question. Like really, it's so obvious. Hmm. Um, and so there are a few like keywords that I've tried to find in my thinking or in my speech that when I hear myself thinking or saying them, I say, well, like, you know, em- empathy alert, right? I, I, sh- I should be more. So, so, so one of those is to say something's obvious. If I say like, obviously, I realize, wait, like nothing is ever obvious and you should learn it. Mm-hmm. And also um, like one phrase that I used to use that I can't believe I use is like, well, as I said, all right, like mm-hmm. even in the best of circumstances, no one is going to be paying attention 100% of the time right? Wake up, listener. You aren't paying attention to what I'm saying half the time now, right? You want to rewind and listen to this podcast again. Right. Any of that, like you're not going to listen the whole time. And so to sort of almost accuse people of being at fault for not mm. having listened and hanging on every word, that's just like, you know, ridiculous snobbery. Um, <laughs> but, but also the other thing is, uh, uh, like for the last, I guess now five years, I've been studying Chinese. Um, okay. And that, that, changed my perspective completely first of all it's just like fun and exciting and i love 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 the looks that i get when i walk into a hotel in china and i say them in chinese like you know hi here's my passport my company ordered me a room for the next three nights and like watching their jaws drop that's just like the best um (laughs) worth every penny but in in, in addition to like the the freak out factor that i enjoy the fact is that chinese is so wildly different from other languages i know that um, it has given me incredible empathy for learning something that seems weird, arbitrary, bizarre, where even after a few years, right, like literally every day, literally every day, my teacher will say, uh, you know, compose a sentence using this grammar pattern, compose a sentence using, uh, uh, you know, this vocabulary word, and I'll get it just a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll get it a little bit, like I'll use the wrong word, word order. I'll use the wrong, like I'll, I'll use words just in the wrong way. And she'll sort of wrinkle her nose 
and say, well, what about? And so I understand that the road to fluency is a very, very long one. And it requires mm. a lot of practice. It requires patience on the part of the teacher to say, wait, you got that wrong. Here's how you would structure that better. And then enjoying along with them and getting the satisfaction along with them of having that improvement. So I'm constantly telling my teacher, hey, like just a few weeks ago, I guess it was like a month ago, I was flying to Shanghai by way of Beijing. And like the line for passports, those of you who haven't been to China, the passport line is typically about an hour and a half to two hours long. Mm. Um, and I had a connection flight two hours later. And so I went up to this woman at the airport. I said to her in Chinese, listen, like my, my flight is another hour and a half. I need to get through. What can you do for me? And so I wrote to my teacher, I said, listen, you helped me in this situation by being so patient with me for the last few years. It's thanks to your hard work that I was able to make my flight. Uh, I didn't get my wow. luggage, but I did make my <laughs> flight. <laughs> oh, I, I love it so much. What, what you're talking about there, basically uh, the expectations, like the little nugget that I basically got out of that is that you need to kind of dial in your expectations when you're learning something. And I have a question for you about that. What expectations should someone set for themselves when they're first starting out looking for clients or getting fluent so they can get clients? Can you talk about developing those expectations for yourself? Look, the good news in Python, well, let's, let's, let's sort of separate two different types of people. The people who don't have any programming experience at all, Python's a great choice because the learning curve is so shallow and also because um, you can do a lot with just a little bit of knowledge. So even if you're just, just, just starting with programming and you get some fundamentals, you know, strings, lists, tuples, dictionaries, and functions, you can get a job. It might not be your dream career path, but it's going to be something to pay the bills for sure. If you come in with programming experience, then the fact that then it's like sort of learning another language once you already know what nouns and verbs and adjectives are, or you're just sort of switching over that knowledge. And you'll still, as I like to say, write Python with a heavy Java accent, a heavy C accent, <laughs> whatever it is, but you get the job done. And right. again, you can get that career. And so really you don't need more than like a few weeks of experience to dive in uh, and, and get, start getting things done and start getting a job. But you're going to, like, we all do this in our careers, right? I wrote a column for a Linux journal for 20 years mm. and I've been teaching now for many years. And in both cases, when I look back and see what I wrote years ago and I see what I taught years ago, I just roll my eyes and I think, oh my God, I can't believe that it was so bad. And I don't think mm. it was bad, but now it's just way better. And that happens to all of us in our careers. We're going to get better. And so you're going to be able to solve bigger problems, more interesting problems in better ways. And then what's going to happen, of course, is you're going to have to maintain code that you wrote years ago. And you're going to say, who was the idiot who wrote this? Oh my God, it was me, right? And that happens to all of us, mm. all of us. And recognize, you know, having that humility and recognizing that we're all always learning and we're all always improving and that our previous selves were the best possible versions of ourselves at that time. All right, that's like, you know, that, that's, still, that's still okay. Mm. Yeah, I love that attitude. And uh, I want to just integrate that into my life more and more. It's a good reminder. So thanks for sharing that. Um, what skills does a programmer need to also run a business? Because programming is like, uh, I th it's like one piece of the puzzle. So not only do you have to solve these hard problems, but then you also have to, you know, run a business. That's right. That's right. So, so, so many programmers, and I was like this too, like you say, I'm, I'm going to be a freelancer. I'm going to have a business. Right? right. And so what do I need for that? Well, I know programming. I'll just wait for the hordes of people to show up on my doorstep because clearly, clearly everyone loves a programmer <laughs> and everyone needs a programmer and they're just going to be like showering me with money. 
Mm, uh, yeah, of not quite, not <laughs> quite. Right. You need to. So, and, and we talk about this a lot of the freelancer show of like, what are the business skills you need um, mm. in order to survive? So you need to find like, who are your clients? What value are you providing to them? Right. So the value I'm providing to people is the training or you know, the additional knowledge they can solve problems with, which businesses want or are willing to invest in. But most developers who go into business for themselves are going to be doing development projects. So are, do you want to do web? Do you want to do DevOps? Do you want to do you know, data science? You can choose a whole bunch of different niches. Mm -hmm. And then, well, now go out and find them, right? Like, how's that going to work? And so marketing is super, super important. And you never stop. You never stop trying to get your name out. You never stop um, improving your brand. It, it's this long, long, long learning curve that lasts, well, lasts as long as your career. Um, at a certain <laughs> point, hopefully, if you do it for long enough, people will start to turn to you. People recognize you and your branding. But, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm still doing it and everyone's still doing it. Identify who your potential clients are, right? Who would benefit most from what you're doing? And then don't be shy to contact them. And here's the crazy thing that like, don't be shy to talk about money with them, right? Mm -hmm. When I started consulting, basically I figured, well, I love programming. Um, so I'll do consulting and I get to help people. And then they'd say, well, how much do you charge? I'd be like, wow, well, I just want to help people, right? Like, why should we mm -hmm. talk about money? Um, folks, this might come as a surprise, but you need to eat and pay the rent. And typically, typically, the people uh, who, who, who are you know, providing those goods and services want money for them. Mm -hmm. So you have to get used to talking about money. And it's like a, a, a grown-up thing to do. Um, that back when I was 25 and started my business, it was a, quite a shock. Um, and there's also no manual for how much do you charge and how do you charge. There are right. many, many, many different perspectives on it. And some of them, I think, are more effective than others. You're going to have to feel all this out yourself. And I hate to say it also, you'll have to be taken advantage of a number of times too. You'll have to have people mm -hmm. stiff you. You'll have to have people, um, you know, you'll do something on a per project basis and they'll completely change the specifications on you. What do you do now? On and mm -hmm. on and on. Um, so the sooner you can sort of get in and try, the better. And, but, but like, you know, figure out who you want to work with. Try to work with them. Don't be shy. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, thick skin, it's always a good reminder to uh, develop thick skin. And all, uh, also, you kind of alluded to something there. There's kind of a differentiation between high value and low value clients. How do you uh, filter out the uh, low value clients? Or what have you learned? Because, yeah. or, or are you doomed to an empirical process of just suffering until you figure it out? Yeah, I think like, to some degree, you're doomed to, I, I love the way you describe that, <laughs> doomed to an empirical world. Right, and, and part of it is you just have to, like you'll get perspective from people. And, and my experience was um, dismissing what other people said until I realized they were right. Well, actually, no, I did get terrible advice to be in my career. So there was this uh, <laughs> lawyer I met um, who said, okay, I'm going to give you like the best business advice you've ever heard, mm. by which I, he really meant, I'm going to give you the worst business advice you've ever heard. <laughs> he said, never say no to a client. You want to say yes to everyone because you never know what they're gonna be like. And this is the opposite of what I tell people now, the opposite of what I do. You wanna be a specialist as much as possible. Be the big fish in a small pond. Um, you wanna differentiate yourself. You want people to know who, what you do. And if something seems fishy, to extend the pond analogy, I guess, if something seems fishy, if something seems bad, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. Um, several, several times I've been taken in by scammers, I've been, you know, I, they, they say, oh, we'll have you work on X and Y and Z, and then they don't pay me. And mm -hmm. virtually every time, it was because I said, oh, you know, I could probably use the money. Sure, let's do this as well. Um, 
Now, sometimes mm-hmm. you really need the money, right? Sometimes you, you have to say yes to things you don't want to do. And that's normal at the beginning. But the moment that you can say no to people, the moment that you can say, wait, I don't actually want to work on X because I really specialize in Y, mm-hmm. that gives you power that you'll only appreciate later on. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So basically just focus on getting yourself in a position where you have the ability to say no, I guess is, is kind right. of like your, your main mission. And, and also like, I mean, there's just so much to ignore the marketing, right? Which is uh, bad things. I like, don't, but if you ignore all the marketing stuff, there's still a lot to do with running a business. You need to worry about your expenses. You need to worry about accounting. You need to worry about taxes. You need to worry about how you're mm-hmm. structuring things. Right? I'm in Israel where it's a little different than in the U.S., but like, you know, there are just so, so many laws and rules and regulations. So in some ways, if when you start a business, you can do what I did. Like I, you know, Time Warner was my employer and then they became my first client. And so that really smoothed my way into doing things where I knew I had a big project. I knew I had income coming in and I could start to learn how, how do I structure a business? How do I expense things? And they sort of, I sometimes described as were my first investor. They allowed me to slowly but surely find new clients and find my way. So if you can hook up with an agency, hook up with a former employer, hook up with a large company to give you that stability that freelancers so often need and teach you how to learn your, you know, you'll learn how to run your business little by little, you sort of get then some of the marketing stuff as well. Hmm. Yeah, that that's uh, so let me let me ask you something about this, because you're basically your first client. You developed a personal relationship with them because you were working with them. And there's kind of this other school of thought where it's like, oh, you can do your freelancing business completely online. Never, never be belly to belly with the uh, client. Is there like a right or wrong answer to this or is one way more effective starting out? What is your perception about like? Is it, you know, important to build these personal relationships to be profitable or can you kind of just color in this little can of worms I just opened up? So the personal relationships are key, absolutely mm-hmm. positively key, even now. So like, I mean, I'm doing training for these Fortune 100 companies and it's mind boggling to me that I email their training manager. I say, hey, you know, like, I have the following dates open. Do you want a course? They email me back. Yeah, sure. I've scheduled it in done, <laughs> right? Like, right. And, you know, and the purchase order sort of comes down the road. So even when you're dealing with these large companies, the personal relationships are key and you don't want to take them off. When I started off, it's true. I was working with Time Warner in person and I said to them, yeah, I'm planning to move to Israel. And they said, what are you going to do there? I said, well, I'm thinking of consulting. And so they said, can we be your first client? So that was like an incredible amount of fortune and good fortune. It really helped me out. I think it was my first like two years of consulting that they were my main client. So that really, really saved me in many ways. Um, if you can pull that sort of thing off. And, and so then I was remote, but it was remote with people I had met before um, right. or like a department of people. Look, it depends. The personal relationship then is key. How you grow it, how you develop it is sort of up to you and up to them. Um, I would say there are plenty of people doing freelancing and consulting online nowadays, much more than back in 1995 when I started. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was even the local newspaper in Israel because you know, <laughs> the headline could have been, should have been crazy American immigrant works from home with people abroad. Uh, but it, it, it almost read that way. So, so nowadays people do that, but, but I definitely found that even as like a US citizen, even as someone with degrees from American universities, being abroad was a huge barrier to entry for me to getting into like the online market. So if I were in the US or based, you know, based in the US, then I think that doing that sort of building those relationships online would be easier than being abroad because people would see it as less weird, less worries about time zones and so forth. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's easier. Mm. Um, but starting with people who have heard of you, who have known you, uh, one of the, for years, one of the best ways I had for getting clients was to speak at a conference because you're showing your stuff, you're showing your knowledge and almost inevitably after a talk there, um, 
within a few months, it might take a few months, someone would call me up and say, hey, I saw you give that talk. We could use some help in that area. So getting your name out, getting your brand out, speaking at you know, user groups, be at conferences, the more you can promote yourself, even sort of subtly, the better it is for you, and the more people will turn to you, which is quite frankly, way easier, way, way easier than reaching out to them. Hmm. Yeah, the, you know, this triggered a, a question in my brain here, and that is, because the audience for this podcast is uh, global when I look at the statistics, and I'm curious, does the model that you're talking about also work in China, in India, in Europe, or, or really is this kind of like a, an American kind of methodology or do you have any insight on that, I guess? Look, the general methodology of having good relations with people and you know, doing freelancing work, um, I think works everywhere. Mm-hmm. But my impression is, like I know in Israel, there are definitely people who um, telecommute, but there's a very strong sense of personal interaction and face-to-face. It's also a very small country. So to say to someone, I'm not going to meet with you in person, even for initial meeting is crazy talk, right? They'll definitely mm-hmm. want to meet with you at least once in person. Uh, but then beyond that, you might well be able to do remote work, just meet with them, say, once a month, once every two months. Um, I actually don't know, even though I've gone to China many, many times, like more than 30 times, I was just in India last month, um, and I know that both have huge tech scenes and even a growing startup scene, which is mm-hmm. a big shift in the last few years. I think in both places, they still do put a premium also on face-to-face. And so I don't know how easily you could get away with purely remote work. Um, mm-hmm. It could be that as a consultant, you can get away with more remote work as opposed to as an employee. Um, but I, I wouldn't know. I mean, I actually, I will know more because I'm actually setting up a company in China right now. Like okay. the, the paperwork was just flown to China like a day or two ago to start the company <laughs> for um, uh, distributing and selling my video courses there uh, for a variety of reasons, half of which is internet access and half of which is language and localization um, hmm. and payments. So wow. I'm going to find out how easy or hard it is to sell to the Chinese market online without having any physical presence. Uh, and a year or two from now, I can tell you either it was a colossal failure or a massive success or more probably a mixed bag. And I'll have learned a lot of lessons. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious to see how that uh, turns out. So we must stay in touch. And uh, congratulations. That sounds awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I, I have no idea what I'm getting myself into, but I already know from <laughs> setting up the paperwork that it's like crazy massive bureaucracy. Like really? sign these wow. forms, not using a ballpoint pen, only <laughs> using black and videotape yourself signing them so that we'll know. It's like, really, really? Come on. <laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing uh, uh, profusely here. I lost my headphones. So sorry about that. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, that sounds like a learning adventure nonetheless. So. Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, we're kind of, we're kind of, we went over time a little bit here. Is it okay if I take a, a few more minutes just to kind of, uh, wrap up the, the interview here or how are we doing on absolutely, time for you? Absolutely. Okay, perfect. So, um, what is, what is the key, uh, to getting students that want to learn from you? Meaning what, like having companies reach out to me or yeah, I, I guess, who, I guess like, like, be, like, like the, the companies or the students. Uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I, I guess I didn't, uh, quite clarify that in my mind when I, more of like a, like a branding thing, like there's all these options out there to get training. Why, why do you think people are, are seeking you out? I guess, let me rephrase it that way. Look, it's, um, people in the high tech world tend to switch jobs a lot. Um, and so what'll typically happen in my experience is, 
uh, someone in a company will say, hey, we need Python training. And someone else will say, oh, in my previous company, we had this Ruben guy do training. So mm -hmm. I have this sort of now, having done it for many years, I have this referral network that's grown and grown over time. Um, I'd like to think that my mailing list has contributed or my blog or YouTube has contributed to that. But actually, mm -hmm. I see very little leakage between like the B2C, like the business to consumer stuff and the B2B stuff, the business to business stuff. It's really like where I've given mm -hmm. training. Now, why do they recommend me? Um, I mean, it's clearly not my jokes, right? Um, <laughs> or at least my family would claim that. Uh, but it's, um, it's, I think, because I'm constantly refining and improving the teaching, right? I, I, I really have this, as I said before, like competitive advantage that I'm always improving my courses. And I have a lot of opportunities to do that. If I taught once a month, then the pace of improvement would be way, way, way slower. But because I'm teaching almost literally every day, um, I, I, I have that self-reflection and self-improvement that's happening at a rapid pace. It's like, you know, startup versus large company and startups can adjust quickly and a large company sort of lumbers along filling out forms of triplicate for everything they need. Um, right. so, so, the, so I've gained a reputation for someone who is flexible and who has good explanations. Um, but that's thanks, as I said, to, to, you know, time investment, both time over a long period of time and then intensively uh, every week and every month. Okay, so kind of the nuggets I'm there, I'm hearing there is just being prolific with the content creation. Do you have any other recommendations on effective ways to get your name out there? Um, well, appearing on podcasts is always a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah. Um, <laughs> um, trying to think. Look, the more people see who you are, so like there was this period of time, very short period of time when someone in Israel, I don't know who it was, decided it would be great to get new technology ideas out to companies that weren't necessarily open to them. Mm. And so um, I gave a whole bunch of free lectures at companies where they would invite like about Postgres or about Python or about data science. Um, I didn't do it a lot of times, but I did sometimes. I spoke recently to like a nonprofit that teaches uh, like ultra-Orthodox women um, technology stuff. So I'm always willing to give like free lectures to nonprofit groups um, mm -hmm. and to meetings and to user groups and to conferences because it gets my name out because it solidifies people's uh, impression of who I am and branding. Um, so I would suggest people do that as well. I'll also tell you, oh, and, and, and webinars online also. And the mm -hmm. reason it's good to do all this is not just marketing. It's because it gives you another chance to try the material to get it out there, to sort of figure out where you're rusty, where your explanations are bad. If you mm -hmm. give a free webinar, you will feel, and let's say it's for half an hour or an hour. So no one's paying, so they can't complain if it's bad. And you can then, <laughs> A, if, it, if it's not so terrible, you can put it up on YouTube and then like, you know, share it with the world and have another branding thing. Mm -hmm. But you will personally feel, hmm, this was great and that could have improved. And so the next time you do it, it's gonna be much better. And so by having these webinars, you basically get like, the first time you teach something in person, uh, you, you will already be better than if it were the first time. Mm. Yeah. You know what I love about this is you're just, you're all about delivering value and that's like your entire mission. And you, as a byproduct, you basically have a business because of that. That's basically, that's what I'm hearing. Right. Right. Look, look, I'm very fortunate that companies now, companies and individuals are like, wow, I can improve my career if I know Python, if I know Python better. And it's a never ending thing, right? So even the people, uh, just a few days ago, I sent out an email to my list saying, hey, I'm now scheduling for 2020, who's interested? And uh, you know, I can see sort of what people clicked on uh, in that newsletter. And I saw that the most popular thing by far that people clicked on was the advanced Python course. Meaning people have kind of like, my interpretation is a lot of companies are using Python, but they know they could use it even better. 
And mm -hmm. so they're interested in sort of taking it up to the next level. And so, right, I'm, I'm happy to help them get better at what they do. And it's good for them. And, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're willing to pay me for this because at the end of the day, what they pay me is a fraction of the ROI that they're going to get from their people being that much more fluent and that much more effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do, uh, do you have any, uh, and we may have already touched on this, but I'll just address it head on here. As far as, because you effectively have a global brand, what, what is like your biggest thing that you learned? If you had to recreate that from scratch, what would be kind of like your biggest uh, idea that you would leverage to rebuild that brand, I guess, from scratch? First of all, it takes time, right? Like there's, I, I was just in touch with someone uh, about a week or two ago. Someone emailed me and he said, listen, I see that you're doing a lot of online teaching. Um, I need to make some money. How can I start making money from online teaching? And my, my sad response to him was, it's not like from today until tomorrow, it's not going to happen. It takes time to build up the brand, to learn what people want, what people don't want. Start mm -hmm. somewhere. Uh, years and years ago, uh, Patrick McKenzie, who's a pretty like, well-known guy in the freelancer space, he said, start a mailing list and start writing to it. And for like a good two years, I dismissed that as nonsense. Like, oh, come on, who needs a mailing list? And then I started to do it and I did it terribly. Like, it's this sort of like, you need to go through these stages, but don't wait. Don't wait because you'll learn from every single uh, um, thing. If I need to start from scratch, I probably have started my mailing list way, way, way earlier, way, mm. way, way earlier. And I would have found topics that were of interest to people. I would have started pushing to be at conferences and meetings so forth, all the things I've been mentioning earlier. I would be much more aggressive about it uh, because you can establish a global brand nowadays, right? The internet makes that possible. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing to me. I was at PyCon uh, in Cleveland, both in 2018 and in 2019. In 2018, it was very humbling to walk around and no one knew who I was, right? I was this well-known brand in Israel, but not so much globally. 2019, mm -hmm. oh my God, like it was like, it, it was humbling in the other way where people came up <laughs> to me and said, oh, I subscribed to your mailing list and I enjoy it and I bought your courses. And it was like, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyone can do it. Uh, you just need to sort of put in the time and the effort and find that niche that will allow you to stand out. If you just say, I'm going to show everyone the basics of Python. Well, you know what? There are a lot of other people doing that. So for example, with the YouTube series, what I found was no one really knows the Python standard library. It's mm -hmm. so huge and, and we take it for granted. So I said, you know what? I'll just walk through it. So I started with the basic, like, like you know, the, the built-ins, but now I'm starting to go through a bunch of modules. I am learning a ton in the process hmm. and little by little, I'm creating this catalog. And of course that'll build on itself and it'll be searchable and you know, people will discover me that way. And that's also gratifying. I've gotten a whole bunch of email and comments from people there too. Yeah, there's, there's so much gold, basically what you're talking about there. First of all, the expectations you need to set for yourself when you're, you know, you want to be profitable with these skills, you know, is this going to happen tomorrow? Let's be realistic and, and kind of set that expectation for ourselves. Also, you were talking about niche selection and how important that is. Do you have any advice on like making that selection or, or obviously it's different for everyone, but I mean, some people will spin their wheels for years defining their niche and some people just start executing on something. How do you have any kind of insight for, for someone doing niche selection? Look again, you could just, I, I would say choose something that you enjoy, choose something that you think like if the bit, the better the intersection between what you enjoy and what's in demand, the better, mm -hmm. um, you know, web development is obviously very, very popular nowadays. Uh, DevOps is very popular. Data science is very popular. I'm sure if I really thought a little more automated testing, Right, so, mm. so when I started teaching Python, I was sure that 90% of my students were gonna be web developers. If 5% are web developers, 
I would be surprised. It's, it's probably less than that. Just because the companies I work with, they're doing tons and tons and tons of automated testing in Python. So mm. I've been exposed to that world. Who knew? Well, I, I guess they knew, but I didn't know. <laughs> uh, right. And so, so choose something that, that you think matches your interests and matches the company's interests. And that will shift over time. And that's natural. Yeah. I, so there's just so much that I'm really resonating with you here because the nugget that I got out of that is like maybe have an idea, but be open and kind of listen, but don't be religious about it because there's a high probability that what's going on in your brain is completely different from what the actual market wants. And the faster you can adjust to that, that's like basically everything I just got out of what you just said. Right. And you will adjust. It will happen. Even if you have an amazing, amazing thing, like, am I going to be teaching Python 10 years from now? Maybe. I mean, I'd love to be, but it could be that things will shift. Maybe there's going to be such demand in data science that will dig deeper and deeper into that and then they'll do even more sort of subtopic-y kinds of training. Mm -hmm. Maybe I, I have to sort of, you know, keep my ear to the ground and see which way the winds are blowing and, you know, many other metaphors uh, that I can mix in there um, from, from my business as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we're talking, we're talking YouTube, blogging, like, like are those, have you just found that those are the best ways to kind of get your name out there or why are you so prolific when it comes to different, like the variety of content that you create? So the newsletter is good for getting an audience that's sort of loyal to me so mm. that I can then sell my online courses, right? I want them to get lots of value. I know that 95% of the people on my list are not going to buy things from me. They're just interested in getting the content. That is fine. That sure. is fine. But when I knew that I wanted to start selling online courses, be they the video courses, be the weekly Python exercise. Um, so years ago, I tried to sell an online course. Uh, and Brennan Dunn, who's a, another sort of big name of the freelancer space, um, he was very uh, kind to me. And he said, you're trying to sell a, a $1,000 course to people who have never heard from you before. That's going to be, what did he call it? That's going to be very challenging. What he really meant to say in less nice terms was, you are never going to succeed at this. This will never happen because that's too much money for people who have never known you before. Mm. Um, and so it does take time to establish that authority. So the mailing list is um, the main place that people find out about my courses and buy them. How mm. do I get people on my mailing list? Through the YouTube channel, through the blogging. And again, if people just get the free stuff, totally fine with me. Because over time, I'm getting known as a brand. And who knows, maybe it'll lead to them mentioning me to their company. And maybe they're just going to learn. And if I can make a good living and only actually get money from 5% of the people who are reading and watching my stuff. How can I complain? <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. that's not a bad thing. Other people are learning a lot. Yeah. There's just, there's so much good that comes out of having that abundance mindset and be a prolific content creator in your niche. And then understand there's going to be a percentage, like you said, 5% or something that really resonate with you. They want to see what more you have to offer. And there's nothing wrong with having like a free, offering and then kind of like a low cost offering and then kind of ramping all the way up. So I love how you've established that in entire like pyramid basically or the ramp or the ladder, whatever you want to call it. It's a great model uh, for, for anyone listening to this. Like just, just uh, hopefully that you learn from Ruben here. He's got a lot of insight. Thank you so much for sharing this. Where can people find out more about you and, and the, the Ruben learner world? So my, the, the main point of entry, as it were, would be my website, which is at learner.co.il. That's L-E-R-N-E-R.co.il. And that mm -hmm. has links then to my uh, newsletter sign-up, uh, Better Developers Newsletter. It has links to a bunch of free email courses that I offer uh, and regular expressions and variable scoping, working with files in Python, where every day you get a new lesson emailed to you automatically for mm -hmm. whether it's five days or two weeks, depending on the topic. 
Um, it also has links to my online store where you can buy the different courses I have available. Um, do I have a link to my YouTube channel? I'm not sure, but we'll link not, to it in here. YouTube. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, link, we'll link to it in here, but there's a, yeah, we'll make sure that people find your, your blog and your YouTube. So your main call to action is go check out the website. They can, they can find out all about these things that we're talking about here. That's, that's the best place to send them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm also on Twitter um, where I also tend to post stuff that's on my blog and news about places, places I've been and what I'm doing. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd love to hear from listeners if they have questions, if they have thoughts, especially if they're interested in training, I'm always happy to hear from people. Sure. Yeah. We'll make sure to set that up there. So I've got a little lightning round. I know, man, I, I've been thoroughly enjoying this and I try and do re, be respectful of the time that we set. And uh, I know we're going over massively. So I've got like some, some lightning questions. And then I'll, uh, sure thing. Yeah. Okay. What is the daily non-negotiable items for you? Two things I try to do every day are take a nice long walk. Lately I've been walking about 10 to 12 kilometers a day. Um, and my, a uh, daily Chinese lesson for about an hour. If I do those, wow, I feel like I've got a great start on the day. Perfect. Uh, best video game ever made? Oh my God, video game. I'm <laughs> such not a game. All right, I'll just say, um, and this is going to date me in a massive, massive, massive <laughs> way, but back when I was working at Time Warner, um, we would all play Doom. Um, and like after everyone else left the office, the programs would play this, and you would hear like yells of uh, ecstasy and agony. Uh, <laughs> Um, I must say I'm like way out of the, uh, way out of the video game. Uh, now, nowadays I'm a boring old guy. So I do like the New York Times crossword. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. But that, that sounded like an epic land party, uh, uh, that, that was, was going great. on back in the day. <laughs> uh, it was great. Uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. Best piece of business advice that you have ever received. Specialize, specialize in something, be that big fish in a small pond. Um, and people will naturally find you way faster and way more than you might have expected. Okay, perfect. Best non-technical book that you've read? Ooh, ooh. Uh, I'm trying to think, okay, it's going to have to be, okay, you know what? I, I just am read recently, Thinking in Bets by Annie, I can't remember her last name. What uh, a fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, it is really changing my thinking on a whole bunch of things. Love it. Thinking in Bets like probability yes. type thing. So she's, she's a professional poker player. Um, okay. And she talks about how, how do you make decisions in life without complete information? Hmm. Um, and uh, it is a fascinating, fascinating book. And uh, her use of the term resulting um, where you measure, you, 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 you decide whether decision was good based on the outcome um, hmm. as opposed to the process that you went through is I've been incorporating it in everything I do for the last few weeks. It's great. Hmm. Thanks for sharing. I'm, I'm always on the hunt for the next read. Uh, top programming languages to learn going into 2020. Well, I've heard this Python thing is going to be pretty good. Um, uh, not Python 2 going to 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so I was brainwashed in college to learn Lisp and to say that Lisp is the best language ever. Um, everyone should learn Lisp, um, not because like, I stock in the parentheses market, but rather just because it really does change the way that you think and how you think about things. Um, I mean, I mean, and that's not, it's not because you're going to be doing programming lists it's because it requires you to think in a different way. Um, yeah. If you, if you do that, uh, I mean like in terms of actual practical programming languages, everyone should know SQL. Everyone should know regular expressions, um, which is not exactly a programming language, but effectively could be. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Once once you know though, once you know SQL and regular expressions, you have these new tools you can hook up with just about any language, again, including Python. Mm. Well, that that has been uh, an excellent uh, uh, just divulging all this knowledge to the audience. Thank you so much. I really hope that people go take action with this information. Is there any uh, anything that we've kind of uh, not touched on that you would like to communicate to the audience? Nothing I can think of offhand except to encourage people. Like I, I've been there, right? It's, it's shocking for me to think that I've had my own business since 1995, which is I think just slightly after the Jurassic period. Um, no, congratulations, seriously. Like, that's an awesome, that's freaking awesome. It's shocking, but you know, we pay the mortgage, we go on vacations. Um, it's possible to do. Mm-hmm. And I encourage everyone to try it out and uh, whatever I can do to help people out. I will definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm there for you. Contact me. And uh, we were talking about empathy earlier. I get it folks. I get it. It's not easy, <laughs> but, uh, but I empathize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ruben. And we'll make sure everybody knows how to get a hold of you. And uh, with that being said, uh, peace out everyone. And I'll talk to you next week.